Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. As you do that, I hope you're excited about Resurrection Sunday coming up in, in two weeks, and we're going to have the opportunity to, to fellowship together uh, over a brunch at, during the Sunday school hour, and there's information about that on the Church Center app and on the website, so be sure to, to check that out, and especially if you're newer to the church, we'd love to have you come and join us for that. It'd be a great opportunity to get to know people, and we'd love to get to know you better too, so be thinking about that and as we anticipate just joy celebrating resurrection here in a few weeks. Well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. I'm going to be gone next week, and the next week following that, as I've already mentioned, is Easter, and then we're going to be back in 1 Samuel 13 and, or 14 and then 15. These three chapters are some very sad chapters. These are chapters describing why the Lord rejects Saul as king. In fact, in, in chapter 15, Samuel is going to be so distraught that he'll, he'll cry out to the Lord all night. So these are some, some very sad chapters. In fact, here's kind of the main idea that we're going to be talking about as we look at these three chapters. This is kind of the, the main idea that I want us to be thinking about. A heart that loves God desires to obey God. That's the, the main thing that we're going to be looking at as we look at these three chapters, a, a heart that loves God, desires to obey God. It doesn't mean that the heart is going to do so with perfection, but it means that the heart that loves God is, is going to want to be obedient, and when there's going to be failure, failure, there'll be repentance. Now, Saul's heart doesn't love God. That's going to be revealed in these chapters, and we're going to see why God rejects Saul as king. And these chapters reveal that Saul's obedience to God is conditional. So, for example, here in chapter 13, Saul is going to conclude that you don't have to obey God when it seems unwise to you. You don't have to obey God when it seems unwise. In chapter 14, he's going to conclude, well, you don't have to obey God in a crisis. If there's a crisis, then you don't have to obey God. And then in chapter 15, Saul is going to conclude that you don't have to obey God when you can't understand what obedience is. And so, over and over again, Saul's Obedience is going to be revealed as, as conditional. It's not true obedience. It's not a heart that loves God. And a heart that loves God, we see in these chapters, desires to obey God, and that's not where Saul is. So let's, let's look at this first chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 13. And if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. And I'm going to begin in verse... 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 13. The Philistines have been causing problems to the Israelites, and Saul is, is gathering his forces together, and we come to verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Verse 8, he waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the, the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to, greet, to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you we're thankful for your, your grace and allowing us to, to gather together in this room. And Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that because of our, our hearts, 
We don't see the, the world around us rightly. We don't think about the world around us rightly. And apart from your divine intervention in our life, we have no hope of doing what's right. So, Heavenly Father, this morning, as we've already done, we've, we confess again our sin to you. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we look to your son, Jesus. We ask that in your kindness, you would reveal him to us this morning through your word. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So th- this morning we're talking about what you see, uh, what you think, and what you do. What, what you see, what you think, and what you do. And, and as we, we talk about these things, I was, I was reminded of them yesterday. I was, I was reading a story about Douglas Adams. Uh, Douglas Adams is the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a famous science fiction humor series. And Douglas Adams tells this story, and, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he tells this story. In 1976, he says, he was in a, a train station in Cambridge, and his train was running a little bit late, and so he went and he bought a newspaper and a coffee and a little bag of, of cookies, and he sat down at a table and opened up his paper, began drinking his coffee, and a man came and, and sat down across the table from him and, you know, acknowledge each other. And, and then the man did something very strange. He took the bag of cookies, opened them up, and took out a cookie and ate it. And Adams, you know, has his coffee and just looks at the guy and thinks, well, do I say something? Uh, he's a, it's kind of a weirdo. I, 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 you know what? I'm, I, I'm not going to say anything, but I, I am going to assert my, my dominance here. And so he looked at me and he, he, he he grabbed one of the cookies from the bag and kind of looked at the guy like, hey, these are my cookies, I ate the cookie. The guy looked at him, and he grabbed a cookie and, and ate it. And, and Adam thought, well, I, I didn't say anything the first time. I'm not going to say anything now, but I'm, I, I'm going to eat my cookies. And so he ate another cookie, and the other guy grabbed a cookie, and they went back and forth until the whole bag was gone, about eight cookies, right? And then the guy got up and, and, and left, and and Adams is just shaking his head at the, the, the weirdness of this person and the, the audacity of someone to eat his cookies. And so he, his train was coming, and he, he took a last swig of, of his coffee and then picked up his newspaper, and underneath the newspaper were his cookies. <laughs> Hadn't seen him there, right? Now, is that true? I don't know. He said it happened. I've seen it other places as well. But this, he said it happened in 1976, and that's the earliest mention of the story. So, you know, I don't know. But, but he had not seen things correctly. Now, once he saw the, the cookies, he, he began to think differently about everything that had just happened, right? The, the whole exchange took on a, a whole other meaning. And in terms of his actions, he certainly wished that he could take back some of the things that he had just done, like eating half the guy's cookies, right? This morning we're talking about seeing, thinking, and doing. And we're going to see that our our ability to see is limited. Our ability to think rightly is limited. And our ability to to do what God wants us to do is limited by our our sight and our thoughts. Here's the main thing that I want us to to think about as we think about this first aspect of Saul's conditional obedience in this chapter. Saul's going to argue that he disobeyed God because it seemed like a wise thing to do. But here's what I want us to think about. Loving God means that I see, think, and do what God tells me to see, think, and do. Loving God rightly. So we're talking here about true obedience, loving God the way that he calls us to love him. Loving God means that I I see, think, and do what God tells me to see, think, and do. We'll talk about how this is key to true obedience of God. And really, we're going to spend a lot of our time on just a few verses that I think capture the point of the chapter very well, verses 11 and 12. But before we get to those verses... Let's talk a little bit about the context. There's a, a crisis here that reveals Saul's heart, and we'll talk more about that even more next week. But look at the text, chapter 13, and look at the, the first few verses of chapter 13. What's taking place? The Philistines are troubling the Israelites. And so what Saul does is he and his son Jonathan take about 3,000 men, 
and they, they divide them into two groups. And Saul takes about uh, two-thirds of them, so 2,000 men, and, and puts them at Michmash. And then his son Jonathan takes the other thousand, the other third, and goes to Gibeon. So they're about, they're about four or five miles apart from one another. And they're there in a very strategic area, hoping to prevent the Philistines from causing trouble. The Philistines are trying to establish their dominance in this area, and Saul and Jonathan are trying to prevent them from being able to, to roam around the land the way that they want to, and so they, they, they station their forces strategically there. And then Jonathan takes some initiative. He defeats a garrison of the Philistines at a place in between his father's forces and his. And when the Philistines hear about that defeat, it's kind of like uh, kind of like messing with a hornet's nest, right? Now they're, they're very agitated, and the Philistines are aware of Saul and Jonathan and their plans, and, and so they gather some forces. Saul and Jonathan take their forces, and they go a little bit to the east, to Gilgal, which we've seen over and over again in 1 Samuel and in the book of Judges, and this, this area in which they meet. So Saul and, Saul and Jonathan take their forces. They go over to Gilgal, they sound the alarm to have other people come and join them there. And then the Philistines gather where Saul had been at McMash. And so they gather all of their forces. And remember, the Philistines are superior to the Israelites in terms of their, their technology, in terms of their forces, in terms of their weapons of warfare. And that's the situation. We come into verse 5. It says, The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up, they encamped in Michmash, the east of Beth Avon. So here are the people of Israel, here are the people of, Philist, of the Philistines. They far outnumber them, and it's a very fearful situation. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, and we, we know that the Philistines, from later in the chapter, they're, they're going on all these different raiding expeditions there from McMash. It says the, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of the, the Jews even go to the other side of the Jordan River, to the land of Gad and Gilead. And, and Saul, he's at Gilgal, and all the people who are with him are doing what? What does it say? They're They're, they're trembling. They're fearful. In fact, Saul waits for Samuel to come so they can offer the sacrifice, but Samuel doesn't come. Apparently, there was a, a standing order in which when the people gathered at Gilgal, they were to wait seven days. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, at least seven days for, for Samuel to arrive and offer the sacrifices, and that's not taking place. And it says in verse 8, it says, the people were scattering from him. So here are the Philistines, here he is in Gilgal, the people are freaking out, and even the people that are with him are trembling, and they begin to desert him. And so Saul says, enough of this, verse 9, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he, he offered the burnt offering. And then it says, verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, boom, behold, Samuel came. It would almost be funny if it wasn't so tragic, right? You've, you've been in those situations before, right, where you're, you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, and suddenly you're discovered. I, I'm in the kitchen, and there's an open bag of, of chocolate chips that I know I'm not supposed to grab. I know they're, they're probably for something else, but I, I look one way, I look the other, I take the chocolate chips, and as long as I'm there, some peanut butter, and I just pour a little bit in my mouth, grab a little peanut butter, and, it, and what happens? In walks a kid, right? What are you doing, Dad? Nothing. Just <laughs> praying, you know. You're caught. What does Saul do here? He's caught. He, he's done what he wasn't supposed to do. And what he said, Samuel in verse 11 says, what have you done? In the Hebrew, it's just two short words, two very ter terse words. What's this? Like, what, what have you done? What are you doing? What are you thinking? And Saul responds to Samuel. He tells him what he's thinking. And what he says reveals something very important about his heart. And we're going to talk. Here's, here's what Samuel's, in Saul's response, he tells him what he saw, 
what he thought and what he did. Let's first of all, let's talk about what Saul sees. Look at verse 11. Samuel's asked him, what have you done? In the, the second half of verse 11, he says, he responds. This is what Saul sees. He says, basically, I saw three things, right? He says, I saw the people were scattering. That's the first thing I saw. Secondly, I saw you not here. You had not arrived when the, within the days appointed. And then the third thing I saw was that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So uh, basically, I, I looked out and I saw people scattering, you not here, and danger to the west. That's what I saw. Now, were those true things? In other words, had, had Saul hallucinated something? No, no, all those things that he saw were, were things that were true. The Philistines were really there. Samuel really wasn't there. The people truly were scattering. But let me suggest to you that there were also some things that he didn't see. He didn't look at the situation through eyes of faith. He only saw the physical world. He had no understanding of the spiritual world, did he? He didn't see the Lord. He didn't look at himself rightly. Remember the story in, in 2 Kings chapter 6? In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha is in a city, and the king of Syria sends an army to surround the city because he wants to, to get Elisha. And Elisha's servant comes to him in 2 Kings chapter 6, in verse 15, and he says that the Elisha's servant rises early in the morning, he looks out, and there's this army with horses and chariots all around the city. And the servant said to Eli Elisha, he says, alas, my master, oh no, what shall we do? He takes his eyes, and he looks at the situation, and he's, he's fearful. And what does Elisha say? Elisha says in verse 16, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And, and then he prays that the Lord would, would open his servant's eyes. And it says, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And what did he see? Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. The Lord didn't cause there to be things there suddenly that weren't there before. What the Lord allowed this servant was to, to see what had always been there. Now, the same is true, as we think about what Saul sees, the same is true for you and for me as well. Unless we are looking with eyes of faith, our, our vision is going to be very cloudy. We're not going to see reality as it truly is. So, for example, our, our eyes are going to be limited in terms of, of the spiritual world. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? There's also a spiritual world that's unseen that we're wrestling with. It's also, it's, it's why uh, Paul would pray earlier in Ephesians in chapter 1 that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that God would give you the ability to, to see spiritual things as they truly are. Our eyesight is limited. Our eyesight is also just, just limited physically. Like we are, only in, we are only in one space and time in a moment, right? We're, we're limited by both space and time, and so we, we can't see everything. In fact, for me, I can't even see everything in a room that I'm, I'm in at that moment. Like, if you're sticking your tongue out at me right now, I have no idea. Stop it. <laughs> you're thinking about it. I can tell. Yeah, don't. Um, it's very disrespectful. Um, maybe a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm limited, right? I, I, was, I was having coffee with Whitney last week, and we were in our living room, and she said, um, do you want to talk about the elephant in the room? And I said, uh, yes, I do. Thank you for bringing this up. I'm sorry. I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> you know. And she goes, you don't know what I'm talking about. I said, no. She goes, I mean that elephant. It was, there was a big rhinoceros. There was literally a stuffed rhinoceros that was in the room on top of the bookshelf that one of our kids, I mean, it was as big as me, and, it was, and I hadn't seen it. I had no idea what she was talking about, right? I missed it. In fact, one of our, 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 our son had said, let's see how long it takes Dad to notice this. And 
Hadn't seen it, right? Limited vision. Limited vision. I want you to think about this. Just think about this. Our ability to see the world is incredibly limited. Remember what, what Job 38.4 and following says? This is what the Lord says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the, the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you? And Job has to say what? I, nowhere. <laughs> I, I did not exist yet. I, I wasn't there to see the things that you saw, God. It seems like every month I, I read some headline about some new discovery that has totally changed our, our view or our scientists' view of, of the nature of the origin of life or the origin of the universe or, or whatever it is. And in fact, last month I, I read this headline. It was late last month, and this was the headline on astronomy.com. The headline was, we just discovered the impossible. Giant young galaxies shake up our understanding of the early universe. And apparently what had happened is that this new telescope, you know, the James Webb telescope, that's just this amazing telescope that gives us the ability to, to look into regions of the universe far beyond what we've ever been able to see. And as, as they're looking at some of these images that this telescope is producing, they're saying, well, there, there are some galaxies that are at where we thought the beginning of the universe was, and, and these are old galaxies, and yet they are larger than we thought a galaxy can, could be. We didn't think there'd be enough gas in the universe at the time that these galaxies were formed to create galaxies with this many stars and this huge, and, and, and the headline is wrong though, right? It, it's not, we didn't discover the impossible. What's happening, our, our, our vision is improving. And wouldn't it be great if there was someone who had been around at the beginning of the universe that could tell us what we need to think about the beginning of the universe? I mean, these aren't, these aren't dumb people that, that believe in, in some of the things that they believe about the nature of, of the beginning of the universe, thinking about it apart from God. They're not, they're not dumb. They're very intelligent people. But what's wrong? Their, their vision is limited. Their eyesight is limited both spiritually and physically. Here's the application. Let, let's embrace some humility, right? And, and acknowledge our great need to, to be told by someone who can see more than we can. My, my eyesight is limited. I'm limited by space, by time, by, by memory, by knowledge. Let's, let's embrace humility and acknowledge our great need for someone to, to, who can see better than we can to tell us what we need to see a heart of faith looks at the world through believing eyes. Saul does not have a heart of faith, and it's revealed in what he sees and what he doesn't see. That's what Saul sees. Saul sees only what his own eyes tell him is there, not what God tells him. Let's secondly move on to what Saul thinks. What Saul thinks. Saul says, this is what I saw and then he says, this is what I thought. Verse 12, he says, I said, now this is what he, what he means here is, this is what I said to myself. So I, I see this, and I didn't see some other things. I, I didn't see through eyes of faith. And when I, when I saw what I saw, when I saw the Philistines, and I didn't see you, and I saw the people scattering, when I saw those things, this is what I thought. The Philistines will come down against me here at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. Saul thinks, basically, I, I'm in big trouble. I, I'm, I'm toast. And what I need to do is, is somehow rectify this, this situation. The Philistines are there. There's no Samuel. The people are being discouraged and leaving. I need to do what I, I have to do in order to preserve the situation as best as I can. And so what does he decide to do? We'll talk about that in a moment. But he thinks I need to placate the people, offer these sacrifices. This isn't a mind of someone who, who trusts the Lord, is it? 
This isn't irrational thinking. Saul, Saul isn't thinking about something that couldn't happen. It was certainly a possibility that the Philistines, Philistines could come there at Gilgal and they'd be defeated. But he wasn't, again, seeing through a mind, or thinking through a mind of faith. In his mind, the fear of man got larger and larger and larger, and he wasn't thinking at all about what God had told him to think about. And, and what had God told him to, to think about? Look, look back at chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 14, Samuel, as he's, as he's talking to the people, he says, well, look at verse 13, he says, Now behold, the king whom you've chosen, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. What, had, what should have Saul been thinking about? As Saul saw the Philistines and he saw the people scattering and he didn't see Samuel, what should have been going through Saul's mind is, okay, I need to obey the command of the Lord. I need to do, even in difficult situations, what God has called me to do. I need to walk and obey. If God has told me that if I do what he's called me to do, it will be well for me and my people. I need to obey God. But that's not what Saul is thinking. Saul looks at the Philistines. He doesn't see Samuel. He sees the people scattering, and his thought is, Philistines, bad. People leaving, bad. Need to fix the situation despite what God has told me to do. Fear of man gets larger and larger. Fear of God becomes smaller and smaller. He thinks about future possibilities and future dangers, not about present fear of God. Now, how's that true for us? What about what we think? Well, let me suggest to you that we also fail to think like God has told us to think. Are you aware that there is a battle going on for your mind? I mentioned Ephesians 6 earlier. But let me read 2 Corinthians 4. As I read 2 Corinthians 4, realize this. Your, your mind is not some safe place that's isolated from attacks of the enemy or from the influence of the world or even your own flesh. Your, your mind is not some insular safe that you can, can keep protected. Your mind is, is, a, is a battlefield. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That the mind of, a, of an unbeliever, for example, is a battlefield. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot think rightly about the gospel. That is not some accidental thing. That is an intentional tactic of the enemy. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And, and I want you to, to, to think about this passage and, 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 and think about the profound implications of the battle that is currently going on for how you think. Notice a progression here in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He writes, now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So I don't want you to to live like the Gentiles. The Gentiles are engaged in, in disobedience. They're walking in immorality. I don't want you to, to walk like they do. Verse, this is verse 17. And continuing in verse 17. In the futility of their minds. They have, they have futile thinking. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Do, do you notice the progression there? There's hard hearts, so there's a spiritual condition, a, a hard heart, a heart that is 
that is not soft toward the Lord. And in that hard heart, what happens? Because the heart is, is hard, there's a, a darkened understanding about reality. There's, there's ignorance. Their hearts cause their thinking to be bad. And because their thinking is bad, there's bad actions. They, they walk like the Gentiles. And what's the result? The result is separation from God. They're, they're alienated from him. And what's the, the answer? The answer is the gospel. To, to think rightly about who Jesus Christ is, to have their hearts transformed. And as their hearts are transformed, they're taught about Christ. They're renewed in the spirits of their mind and the spirit of their minds. And then they are, as they are in Christ, they can put off the old self, the, the former manner of life that's corrupt through deceitful desires, and they can, by God's grace, now be renewed in the spirit of their minds, thinking truth and then living rightly. If, to put it very simply, again, if you love God, you're going to want to obey Him. And if you want to obey God, you must think rightly. You must think rightly if you're going to obey God. You say, well, Daniel, how do I get my mind right? Let me give you kind of four application points here as we think about this, thinking rightly. Number one, you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the gospel. The gospel, of course, is, is the good news that even though you are a sinner and even though you are separated from God because of your sin, God, in his, his great love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us after living the perfect life of obedience, die on the cross for us, taking the penalty for our sins, rising from the dead, and now, by the same power that, that brought God, that, that by, by which God brought Jesus to life, that same power can bring you and I to life as we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. You need to believe the gospel because until our hearts are transformed by the gospel message, we have no hope of thinking rightly. So, number one, believe the gospel. Number two, you must realize that there is a battle. You must realize that there is a battle for the mind. Imagine living in Ukraine right now. And living your life as, as though there was no battle going on around you. What a foolish way that would be to live. A person who's going to live in a, a society torn apart by war is going to be aware of it. They're going to be cautious. They're going to live their, their lives in light of that reality. You must brothers and sisters in Christ, not think of your mind as some sort of passive, neutral place, but you must recognize that there is a battle that is going on for how you think about reality. What does 2 Corinthians say in, verse, in chapter 10? Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy what? Not people, but we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to Christ. All around us are, are lofty opinions and arguments and ideas that are designed to, to destroy our thinking. And what do we need to do as, as we encounter thoughts and attitudes and opinions and, 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 and conceptions of reality? We need to take every thought captive to Christ say, is, is this true? Is this right? I've mentioned before a book called Biblical Critical Theory, and, and I, I wish it had a different title because I think it makes it harder for people to realize what the author, Christopher Watkin, is doing. Um, I found it helpful. I don't agree with everything in it, but what he's trying to do is trying to analyze our culture in light of the Bible. And he, he talks about this. He says, our, our world, you can call it a worldview, but he, he uses the phrase world. Our world is our perception of, of things. It's how we make sense of space, time, ideas, reality, behavior, and relationships. So there's, there's this whole world around us and, and we're being shaped by things that we don't even realize are, are shaping us. For, for example, let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, imagine a story that, 
you're watching on TV or you're reading in a book or you're listening to on a podcast. And in this story, there's a hero. Now, what makes this, this man or this woman a hero? Some people are going to tell a story of a, a hero who sacrifices for others, and, and they're going to view that sacrifice for the benefit of others as heroic. Or you're going to be reading a story of a hero, and this hero is a person who, who uh, fights others and despite what it means to those around him, pursues what's best for his own advancement. Now, there are stories of heroes that that do both things in our culture. But what we find heroic, either sacrificing for others or or pursuing our own self-actualization, those tell us very much about how we view reality. One author, Christopher Walken, mentions this. He says, one author says you can tell a lot about a person's worldview if you ask them, what time is it? <laughs> Some, yeah, what time is it? Some people are going to say it is, and some of you are watching this very closely right now, it's 11.31 a.m. Sunday. Yeah. yeah, some people, what time is it? Morning? What time is it? Sunday? <laughs> you can tell a lot about a person's worldview just in their perception of time. In our culture, uh, perhaps one of the biggest battles for the mind right now in our culture is how we perceive our, ourself. Carl Truman wrote a, a book that I've, I've talked about before, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and there's a smaller version called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked this, the Sexual Revolution. He gives this illustration, this, this thought experiment, experiment I've mentioned before, where he says, you know, if you were to ask my grandfather, someone would go to my grandfather whenever he was a young boy and, and say, I'm a I'm a man trapped inside of a woman's body. My grandfather would have looked at them and said, say what now? That doesn't, is that a joke? But now in, in our culture, I, I say that sentence and we all kind of know what that means. There's this, there's this cultural understanding. There's this belief that the self gets to decide who it is and, and we all get to decide what's best for us. And th- there's a belief in our culture, this is kind of the narrative of our culture, that we need to be, be free to do whatever it is that brings us the most happiness, as we define happiness. In other ages, you need to understand this, we don't even think about this, in other ages, that you know what that would have been called? Selfishness. But th- that's not the case. Now, I say this, we don't understand the battle that's going on for our minds, for our thinking, we need to grasp that there is a battle taking place. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's a battle for what you think about the world around you. Every secular entity, every political party, every organization that you're a part of is, is fighting for you to view the world in the way they do. Example, I was, I was uh, looking at a news article this, this past week, and listen to the headline. This was from, uh, I think this was from CNN. Listen to the words that they use to describe. They're, they're talking about Florida, and they said, uh, Florida, this is the headline, Florida sued over ban, sorry, Florida sued over ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth, right? So, now, that oftentimes as we think about secular news organizations, we think, oh, they're, they're, they're lying, they're saying things that aren't true. Generally, not always, but generally, they're, they're saying things that are true, but with a worldview that is very contrary to a biblical worldview, no matter where you're getting your news, right? So, again, the headline, Florida sued over ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Now, how else might you write that headline? Florida sued by those wanting to mutilate children, there's a much different spin on, on those words, right? My, my point is this. Every, every, every entity in your life is trying to shape your view of reality. So realize that there's a battle for your mind. Futile thinking will lead to sinful walking. So believe the gospel. Realize there's a battle for your mind. Number three, think rightly by not setting your mind on the flesh. Think rightly by not setting your mind on the flesh. Romans 8 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. But to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and and peace. 
Don't be surprised if you have a steady diet of worldly thinking and you begin to think worldly. Don't set your mind on things of the flesh. If you listen to a podcast from a secular worldview or talk radio or watch Netflix and all these different inputs in your mind are coming from these worldly sources, there's no discernment on your part, don't be surprised when you begin to adopt the thinking of this world about greed, about sexuality, about pride, instead of accepting the things of the Lord. So realize that you need to set your mind not on things of the flesh. And then the fourth thing I would encourage you with, think rightly by dwelling on the word of God. Think rightly by dwelling on the word of God. Let the word of God shape your reality. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but by, and notice here, as, as I read this, notice this connection between thinking, what you do, and your peace. He says this, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, so think biblical things. Think truthful things. And then as you, you think those things, do them, and you will see peace. The God of peace will be with you. Now, I don't know how physical, emotional, spiritual, mental aspects of us all interact. There's us beyond me to, to fully comprehend before eternity, but I believe that thinking rightly will bring us peace. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle with things like depression and sorrow. Those are incredibly complex things in a fallen world. But it seems clear to me that if, if we're actively doing the things in our minds that, that not only God, but, but common sense and, and others tell us are, 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 are helpful for us, God's going to bless that. It's going to help us think rightly about sorrow and about depression and about how we live in obedience to God. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Here, here's some scriptures. In my, my prayer journal, I, I have some, some scriptures written down that I try to meditate on each morning, and they kind of change, but here's some that, I, some that I've written down over the past few months that I try to think about every day. One is, one is Proverbs 15.15. 15. Proverbs 15.15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. I, I can struggle to think positive thoughts, right? And so what do I do? I, I meditate all the days of the afflicted are evil. So if I have this attitude that woe is me, this, this self-pity, all my days are, are going to be evil. Well, today was bad, and tomorrow is probably going to be bad because this person is going to say this to me. And, but what is... But, but here's what Scripture tells me, the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. If my, my joy is fixed on the Lord and, and not in my circumstances, there's going to be this continual feast. I need to think about reality that way. That's something I need to meditate on. Philippians chapter 1. This is a, a passage that I just wrote down this past week. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, how is that helpful? Listen to it again. It has been granted to you, given to you. To what? That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's reality. Now, sometimes the world that I've construed for myself, it, it doesn't include a, a category for suffering. Suffering is, is something foreign. Suffering is something that not, should not be a part of my life. But a biblical worldview, I meditate on Philippians chapter 1. It says, no, 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 it has been granted to you. God has given to you, to you for your benefit, for, for God's glory and your good. It's been granted to you that you should suffer. Not only just, don't just believe in Jesus, but you're also going to suffer for his sake, for the sake of his name. I'm not above suffering. It's a gift of God. It can lead to fruitful ministry. That's a helpful thing for me to know about reality. 
Or think about 1 Corinthians 6. Meditate on this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is an incredibly important truth for us to know in this day and age. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the unrighteous? So the unrighteous, the, the, who, who are they? Well, don't be deceived. Don't, don't think wrongly, Paul says. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's an important truth for us to grasp in this culture that encourages greed, that encourages sexual immorality, that encourages idolatry. It is important for me to meditate on this truth. The idolaters, the sexually immoral, the swindlers, the kingdom of God is not for those people. Verse 11, here's another truth to let wash over us. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I, I meditate on this truth. Okay, this is who I used to be, but this is not who I am now. I'm, I'm in Christ. I have several more. Psalm chapter I won't go all of them. One more. Psalm chapter 12. This, I, I wrote this, uh, these verses down in a week when a lot of you just kind of, several people emailed me. I'm just so discouraged about our culture. I'm so discouraged about this, and I'm so discouraged about that, and I'm still so discouraged about the wicked, and I'm so discouraged about just where we are as a culture. And here's what Psalm 12, verse 6 says. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground on the, on the on the ground purified seven times so i have access to these pure, in, a, in a culture that denies god's truth i have access to the words of god himself pure words and then he goes on you o lord will keep them you will guard us from this generation forever so in, in the midst of a of a of a culture that is continually rebelling against God, I have his word, and, I, and God is going to preserve me by his word. And then he goes on, he says, on every side the wicked prowl as, vile, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So as, as you live in this culture, we can have this tendency to think, oh man, culture has never been this bad before. No one has ever seen the wicked things that we've seen before. And, and for sure, there, there are some common grace truths that are being rejected more and more. But I come to Psalm chapter 12, and I, I say, look, vileness has always been exalted among the children of man. I don't lose hope. My, my reality is this. My reality is that the Lord will keep his word. He will guard us from this generation forever. That's my hope. That's where I'm secure. That's, I need to think about that. What does Saul see? He sees things and only the things that he sees, he doesn't see what God tells him to see through a heart of faith. What does Saul think? He thinks things based upon his limited vision. He doesn't think what God tells him to think. And so what does Paul do, or Saul do? Saul does what God has told him not to do. Verse 12, what Saul does. I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. We're going to unpack this in the coming weeks. He disobeys. It's inevitable. Once we've lost our sight, once we've lost our mind, our actions will follow. And Samuel tells Saul the kingdom has been lost. And we'll come back to that when we go into chapter 15. A heart that loves God desires to obey him. And loving God means I see, think, and do what God tells me to see, think, and do. Let me read these words from C.S. Lewis. He's talking about a non-Christian's understanding of the world, and he says, look, if I, if I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, the, the scientific view of the world apart from God, he says, if, if I believe that, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run is dependent upon the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind and the trees. And he talks about how a man might dream of, about dragons. And in, in the dream world, the making world, the, the, in the dream world, the waking world doesn't make any sense. But he says this. The waking world is, is, we know the waking world is more real 
because the waking world can contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dreaming to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and all other religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things since not even its science itself can fit into these world, wor, worlds. And then he says these words that are inscribed on his commemorative stone in the Westminster Poets' Corner. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, think, and do what God tells you to see, think, and do through eyes of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality that we are blind, and yet you and your, your kindness have offered us sight. Lord, even those, even those in this room who, who don't need glasses or don't need some sort of device can, to help them see, e- even the, the best people with the best physical vision can only see partially. And so we thank you, you the God that has been here since the beginning of time and will be here at the end of time, that, that you who see and uh, see all things and, and can not only see all things but can comprehend what all those things mean and not only can comprehend what all those things mean but can, can intervene in a powerful way because you're sovereign. We thank you that you have revealed your truth to us and allowed us to enter into relationship with you through faith in your son Jesus. We pray that in your kindness, you would help us to see what you see through eyes of faith, to to think what you want us to think through a mind of faith, and to do what you've called us to do through the work of your spirit. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus for your glory. Amen.